Our second reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I uh, invite you to listen for God's word to you. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So you might have figured out already that today is Trinity Sunday. Um, It's written on your bulletin, so I guess that's probably the first clue. Trinity Sunday is the day in our church calendar uh, when the readings in the lectionary, the readings from John, uh, the readings from Roman that I, that I just read, uh, they, they show us how central the Trinity is to our understanding of God. And I know, uh, I know it's not as cool of a, of a Sunday as Easter uh, or Pentecost, right? There's no red velvet cupcakes on the patio today. But it's still a really important moment in our church calendar. And uh, the reason that that the Trinity is important is that it's the church's, uh, or the Sunday is important, is that it's the church's attempt to describe God rightly. And the reason that this endeavor gets an entire Sunday of its own is that we actually think that what you believe about God matters. And not just maybe what you think you should believe about God or what someone has told you you should believe about God, but what you actually believe about God matters. The Trinity is not just a a lofty theological idea, right? It's a doctrine, I think, that touches every part of our lives, every part of our lives. And I know that it isn't easy to describe God, to think about God, to conceptualize God. Robert Capon once said that when human beings People like you and me try to describe God that we are like a bunch of oysters trying to describe a ballerina. Which is kind of weird if you think about it, but that's how utterly different we are to God. That is how utterly beyond our comprehension God really is. And then in the very next breath, Capon says, but that has never stopped us from trying, which is true. And you know what, if this is hard, if this is hard, if the doctrine of the Trinity is complicated, trying to figure out how God might be three in one, that's okay, that's okay. What God worthy of our worship would be easy for us to wrap our minds around. This doctrine is both so difficult and yet so necessary that almost every church split can be traced to the doctrine of the Trinity. All the early church councils, all the early church creeds uh, were trying to correct someone who had gotten the Trinity wrong. 
which tells you a couple of things. First, that the earliest Christians believed that what we talk about when we talk about God is really important. And two, that I will probably say something completely wrong this morning. But I'm the only pastor here, and my boss is on sabbatical. <laughs> he is not reading your emails. Uh, so you're just going to have to live with it. And just to cover my bases, you'll see on the inside cover of your bulletin that I've linked to the Athanasian Creed, and that's right. I know that that's right, so if I say anything wrong, just reference the Creed later. Capon is right. Describing God uh, is difficult, but again, the Trinity is not a, a lofty theological idea. It is basic Christianity that you can grasp. If you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, or if you've ever prayed in Jesus' name, you are a Trinitarian. If you have ever sensed God's presence, AKA the Holy Spirit, you are a Trinitarian. If you consider yourself to be a child of God, if you consider other people to be children of God, you are a Trinitarian. This is basic Christianity, and it is a truth that we can all grasp. You do not need to use big words, uh, and you do not need a theological degree to understand or at least behold the mystery of the Trinity. And even though it can be tricky uh, to wrap our heads around this kind of mathematical piece of this, how could God both be three and one, maybe start with the one first. And the one is not maybe what you think. Right? Mostly we get hung up when we try to think of three gods. I want you to think first and to start first with Jesus. Right? A professor used to say in, in seminary, Jesus is the answer. What is your question? <laughs> That's the Trinity. Okay? He is the key. As the gospel reading from John uh, for today showed, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. So we know right away, oh, there's someone else involved. There is a Father somewhere involved. And Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we are clued in again. There is another person involved here. So to get the Trinity right, or at least to begin with, start with Jesus. Jesus is always the best answer to the question, what is God like? Many of you, I think, are familiar with uh, the name N.T. Wright. Uh, if you're not, N.T. Wright is a, a popular scholar and historian who has written extensively on early Christianity uh, for the benefit of the church, for people like you and me. But before he became kind of N.T. Wright, you know, before he started using initials, he was just Tom, okay? He was Tom, and he was a chaplain at Worcester College in Oxford. And each year, as a chaplain, he would meet with incoming uh, undergrads first-year undergrads individually to kind of introduce himself as the chaplain, get to know them, uh, avail himself to them, let them, let them know kind of what he did and that they were welcome at any of the, the services uh, that he would provide. And he, re he recalls that even though, you know, they were very polite, they were very nice to him, that they would almost all tell him, you're not going to be seeing very much of me. They would all say, I don't believe in God, which is how you know this is a true story because that is the most on-brand thing a freshman in college would do. But Wright would respond to them, oh, that's interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? Which would always kind of catch them 
off guard. And after they gathered their wits, they would describe this God that they didn't believe in as a being who lived up in the sky, looking down disapprovingly at the world, occasionally intervening, doing miracles, of course, sending bad people to hell and taking all of the good people with him to heaven. Again, much to the surprise of the students, Wright would reply to them, well, I'm not surprised that you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. I believe in the God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. I imagine uh, that some of you struggle or have struggled with the exact same thing that Wright's students struggled with. Belief in God, and particularly belief in a certain kind of God. Maybe some of you grew up with an understanding of God like this. I like to call this God drone God, right? It's kind of just uh, watching you, surveilling you, waiting for you to do something wrong in order to punish you. Maybe now some of you live with this understanding, this image of God, as God is out to get you, to catch you out. And if this is what you believe about God, then you really don't have any other choice but to be perfect. And since you can't be perfect, it means you have no other choice but to pretend to be perfect. It's a view of God without mercy, uh, forgiveness, or grace. And when I say that what you believe about God really matters, this is what I mean. If you believe that God is looking for every opportunity to punish you, then you will live in fear all of your life, constantly afraid of never being good enough. And my friends, that is no way to live your life. Maybe drone God isn't the God that you think of when you think of God. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's not that God is kind of overbearingly present, but maybe noticeably absent. In the early 2000s, the the National Study of Youth and Religion began the the largest and really most ambitious study uh, ever conducted of the faith of American uh, teenagers. And what they found in their research is that three out of every four American teenager identified as a Christian. But what they found about their faith was that it was defined uh, by three things, and they called these three things moralistic, therapeutic deism. That was their faith, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Basically, the young people they interviewed believed that God wanted them to be good and really expected them to be good, moralistic. God wanted them to be happy or fulfilled, therapeutic. But other than that, he kind of left them alone. Kind of left them alone, which is where you get the deistic part. Maybe, maybe if things got really bad, God might intervene. But for the most part, he said kind of, good luck. (laughs) The God they believed in could be described not as a drone God, but basically like a cosmic lifeguard. The researchers, though, were quick to add that moralistic therapeutic deism isn't just limited to the faith of teenagers. Where do you think they got it? From adults, which tells you that the predominant view of God from adult Christians in this country is that God wants you to be good, expects you to be good, happy, fulfilled. But other than that, it's pretty distant 
from your day-to-day life. I will say it again. What you believe about God actually matters. It actually matters day in, day out. And neither drone God or lifeguard God are of much help to us, are they? But thankfully, neither one is the God that we receive revealed in Jesus Christ, which is to say neither is the triune God. In the reading from Romans I just read, Paul tells us that we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. What Melanie said earlier, now there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. Through Christ we have been given the gift of God's grace. That means that God is not out to get us. God's impulse is not to punish us. God is not watching your life, waiting for you to mess up, to catch you and say, see, see, you were bad all along. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians that in Christ, God was reconciling the world, not counting their sins against them. And because, as both Jesus and Paul tell us, the Holy Spirit is present in our daily lives, guiding us into the truth, pouring God's love into our lives, it means that God is not uninvolved in the world. God is not distant from your day-to-day reality. God, the Holy Spirit, is working in your daily life, speaking into your conscience, into your emotional life. Whenever you feel convicted about a decision that you've made or an attitude that you've developed, that is God, the Holy Spirit, working in your life. Whenever you feel a sense of God's grace, a sense of God's peace, a peace that what? Passes understanding. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The image that is printed uh, on your bulletin is an icon that was painted by Andre uh, Rublov in the 15th century. This is gonna be a little bit of show and tell. You're gonna to wanna to look at your bulletin. Many in, in Rublov's culture uh, were confused by the doctrine of the Trinity, and so he painted this to help their understanding. Uh, it depicts, as you can see there, it depicts three angels who visited Abraham to promise that he and Sarah would bear a son. But the focus of this painting is not on Abraham. It's not on Sarah but it's on these angels who in Christian theology have come to represent the Trinity. You can see uh, the three angels sitting at this table. Most scholars understand the figures to uh, be seated left to right in the order of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's, there's no hierarchy. There's no JV or varsity to God, right? There's no different C-suite roles to God. They are co-equal in their status as God. Each holds a rod in his left uh, hand. Each wears a cloak of blue, which is the color of divinity. And the face of each is the same, depicting their oneness. You'll see, you'll notice that the, the, the line of their bodies forms a full circle, reflecting the unity of the Trinity as one God in three persons. None of them existed before the other. None were created. And there are no parts to God either. Each isn't one-third God. They are all God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And so on. You get it, right? Yeah. 
You may be wondering, neat painting, John, how is this of any help to my life? Notice that there's no real action in the painting. All we see there is a cup on the table that the middle uh, figure who represents Jesus appears to bless and receive as if it is the cup that Jesus prayed would pass from him but ended up accepting anyway. No, the, the real emphasis of the painting is on the silent communion of the angels sitting around this table, which is meant to convey that within the Trinity, God has everything God needs. What we talk about when we talk about God is an eternal, loving relationship. It's an embodiment of perfect love, love without accusation, shame, resentment, fear, or shame. As a result, God doesn't need anything. And why is that important? Well, it means that the love of God for creation, the love of God for you, the love of God for me, is completely gratis. It is entirely unnecessary. This is what theologians call grace. God did not need to create the world. God wanted to. In fact, the Trinity is a reminder that God refuses to be God without us. To paraphrase Thomas Aquinas, the miracle is not that God exists, but that we exist. The detail I love most about this painting, though, is that while it depicts God as completely satisfied within himself, that he leaves room. He leaves room for us to be included. The way that Rublov has painted it, the table is open to us, as if you or I could pull up a stool and sit at this table. You don't have to join out of fear of punishment or because you think God needs you. You are not needed, you are loved, and there is a big difference. The truth is, it isn't just college freshmen who struggle to believe in God. We all wrestle with belief. Maybe not every day, but there will come a moment in your life when you will wonder what God is really like. What God is really like. And when you run into that doubt, it's worth asking yourself which God it is you don't believe in. And you might be surprised at what you discover. My friends, God is not out to get you. And God didn't just create the world and say, good luck. God is here waiting for you pull up that stool. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.